we turn to Scripture right away. And we begin with 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, which says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. And then we go to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Indeed, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joint from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and before Him no creature is hidden but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. That's the Bible talking about itself. And even in there, sort of uh, mixing together God's word, the thought of God, with the actual words written in the Bible. Perhaps no other written book has shaped our Western world like the Bible. If you're from the Orient, if you're Chinese, or some area over around there, you'll have Confucius. But we in the West, we have the Bible. 3,000 years old, written over 1,000 years in its making, recorded the life. It's recording the life of one particular people, the Jews, the Hebrew children. And their unique thing about them, that they believe in one God, the one God. One people, one God. Reformer John Calvin, 500 years ago or so, stated that nature, nature is the first revelation of God. But, Calvin says, the scriptures are the best revelation from God. In other words, they are amplifying what nature has already begun. So we say all this about the Bible, and we're all supposed to be so familiar with the Bible, even if you're not a Christian or whatever, and yet... And yet, and yet, why is there so much confusion surrounding the Bible? Well, I contend that something that drastically has gone wrong with how we read the Bible. And it's something so wrong that it has led to an emotionally unhealthy people, emotionally unhealthy Christians, I think an emotionally unhealthy secular culture, certainly unhealthy churches, and even unhealthy or unbiblical doctrines. And yet we're talking about the Bible. I think there is two damaging extremes when it comes to reading the Bible. And I'm going to give them to you here. And, uh, you know, I'm not real excited about labels. I'm not sure any of us are, and we tend to throw them around, especially this one that says liberal because we immediately jump to the political arena these days on liberal conservative. But this is really a technical word in, uh, in biblical scholarship, and I'll get to what it means in a moment. That's one extreme of damaging readership. The other extreme is what um, is called literalist or literalism. And this one, of course, doesn't, you don't have many preconceived ideas about this, but we'll get to that one in a moment, too. But first, let's begin with what's called a liberal reading of the text of the Bible. And when I say liberal, I would have rather have written up here materialist, but that's a bit of a thick philosophical word, and I'm going to give you a couple of those anyway. But this would be a philosophical materialist. In other words, somebody who doesn't believe in anything other than the material world. 
other than what you can touch and feel and, and record and measure and this sort of thing. Nothing uh, abstract or spiritual or anything like that. And this all kind of goes back to 300 years before Christ with Plato and uh, spirit versus material and that material is unreal and that spirit is real and all this sort of blah, blah, blah. Um, and in more recent terms, we get around to post-enlightenment rationalism. There's your 15-cent word for the day. Post-enlightenment rationalism with Immanuel Kant and uh, Hegel and the likes of that. And our world is shaped by those philosophers even if you don't care about it on the quiz that was handed out, you know, junior year in high school. It's still right there. It's a part of what we are. So, in other words, just to get to the shorthand on this, the liberal reading of the Bible believes in a scientific world, a technology science world, a math world, a geology, anthropology, all of the ology type words that are what we would even call today, tellingly, hard sciences. Okay? That's a liberal reading. It doesn't have anything to do with politics. The liberal reader begins with the assumption that God does not act in space and time. God is not a part of this universe. And so when they read the Bible, they are not looking for miracles. As a matter of fact, miracle would be something that we'd pass over. You would do something just like during the founding of this country when this, uh, when Immanuel Kant and the rest were writing their philosophical arguments, same time as America, you would have done what Thomas Jefferson had done. Every time he came to a miracle in one of the Gospels, he actually took scissors or a knife and cut it out of the page, out of the paper. So he ended up with four Gospels that were all full of holes. There was very little left. This same sort of thing has gone on even back in the 1980s and even in the early 90s with the Jesus Seminar where they took little colored beads. They had black and they had gray and pink and red and then these guys got together and they casted votes on what were actual words of Jesus and they graded them on, on those four values. Ultimately they said Jesus only said 16% of what's written in the, in the Gospels. That would be a liberal reading. So in other words, every time Jesus said something that sounded a little too much like I am God or here's a miracle, they'd say, yeah, he didn't say that. And they'd throw it out. That's the liberal reading. No miracles. Nothing supernatural. The Bible then, for these folks, becomes an ancient, scientific, historical textbook. Nothing but a distant, dusty story, poems and prayers about an old people that are long gone. There's nothing living, active, sharp, or soul-piercing about it. This reading of the Bible has been around since the birth of America, like I was saying. It first flourished then and, and fit in with a worldview that was called deism, with a D, as in Dei, you know, meaning God. It, and the deist uh, that some of the founding fathers uh, were credited with said that God wound up the clock of the universe, set it on the shelf, and then left. He went fishing or something. And he hasn't been around. And it's now up to us then to, you know, complete the world as we best fit. And that doesn't that fit nicely in with the American dream? That we will be the new Jerusalem. We will make mankind into what it's supposed to be. We are the people with capitalism and democracy and all of these things. We are the next generation. And doesn't that sound like Star Trek? You know, that we will all zoom around someday and we won't need money and there'll be world peace, universe peace and we'll go around and find a few aliens that are breaking you know, the rules of love your neighbor and we'll tell them to stop it. That's a liberal reading of the Bible. This reading of the Bible, this liberal reading of the Bible has fallen out of fashion really in the last 25 years. The whole idea 
that the Bible is a history book, that it has no miracle, has begun to erode and fall apart in the light of a philosophical shift called postmodernism. Postmodernity has begun to say, like, well, maybe everything isn't science and technology. Maybe there really is something we would call myth. And you guys know what a myth is. A myth is something that can either be true or not true, but it's absolutely true for the way we live our life. But that's a whole other talk. That's one damaging extreme, is to turn the Bible into a textbook, a distant dead book, and cut out everything that's supernatural. Something that's really been popular in the last few hundred years. The other damaging extreme that is more familiar with us around here at Lakeland then would be a literalist view of the Bible. A literalist reading of the, view of the Bible that we just view it as saying, I read the Bible literally. I do not interpret. I don't do anything like that. I've talked with many Christians over the years, and I might as well have been one of these, you know, decades ago. And they would have said to me, over 30 years of ministry, they would have said, well, I just read the Bible literally. I don't interpret the Bible at all. I just read it at its bare face value. What it says is what I believe. There is no interpretation going on, and, and which is just poppycock. Everyone interprets. And if you're a good Gen Xer with your deconstruction gene inside of you, you'll understand that everything has spin. So when you watch the news and you watch CNN, you say, oh, that's liberal. And when you watch Fox, you say, oh, that's conservative. And nobody's actually telling you just the pure, unadulterated truth, right? like William Randolph Hearst did around 1900 when he said, we're just going to report the news. Pure. Interesting. 1900, William Randolph Hearst says that, and at the same year, Albert Schweitzer writes his quest for the historical Jesus where he says, we're just going to tell it pure. The height of modernism, science, and technology will show the way forward in the world. I know I keep talking about all of this Immanuel Kant and rationalism stuff, but I'm telling you, it's the water we swim in, and, and the air in that water is what we breathe, and we don't even know it. And, and there's a shift going on, and that's why I'm bringing this up. Okay? That's why I'm bringing this up. The literalist then says that I don't interpret anything. Now, here's the way this works. Um, if you've got that chart, Mark. So think about this. This is what biblical scholars would say is going on in that everyone interprets. You start with the original event, okay? Let's say Jesus turned water into wine. Fine. Jesus turns water into wine. None of us were eyewitnesses. Were James and John and Peter and the rest of these guys are eyewitnesses? Maybe, maybe not. The Gospels don't really say. But let's just assume, since they're being written about, let's say John. Okay? John saw the water get turned into wine. So the observer sees the event. John sees it. The observer then writes down with the ability to write Greek. John's is fairly simple. Writes down what they saw. So in writing down the words, they don't tell everything. They're telling what they thought was important about it. The little conversation there with Jesus and his mother and all of that sort of thing. And it's not my time yet and all of that. That get, gets recorded. Next step then, the reader reads what they think, that's you and I, we're the reader, we read what we think the observer saw. Right? What kind of wine was it? Was it a Chardonnay? Or was it a Merlot? Was it in a big, you know, clay pot? Or was it in some sort of glass sort of container? Did it have a lid or not? Was it shaped like this? Or was it a big bulbous kind of thing? What was going on? Was it purified water? Or was it spring water? We don't know. And the reader then pictures in their mind what they believe 
the writer was writing about the event. In other words, all of this complicated step process to say everyone interprets. Now, if you're a literalist, that's a really scary thought because you're going to be like, well, then it's not true. The problem is both the materialist, the liberal materialist, and the literalist both want the Bible to be a science textbook. They want it, they think of it in the same exact way that it's saying the absolute truth. This one just simply says it's, it's speaking very true, but they're lying in it. In other words, they told a bunch of myths, they made up a bunch of supernatural miracles and stuff. And this one over here is saying like, I, I in the purity of my mind am reading it absolutely unfiltered. I am, I, I might as well have been the guy there watching the water get turned into wine. We turn to Scripture itself. We turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 1, to find this very honest assessment that does not fall into either one of these. This is how Luke, good Dr. Luke, he was a doctor, a physician, this is how he begins his Gospel with these words. Pay attention. Is he an uh, eyewitness to Jesus or not? Since many have undertaken, Luke says, since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events, where we can only assume he's talking, scholars would say he's talking about Matthew and Mark. An orderly account of the events that had been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided, Luke says, after investing everything carefully from the very first to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. Then he's off to the races. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, which is John the Baptist's father, and the ministry of Jesus is about ready to start. Theophilus, by the way, just a theological tidbit, could be a made-up name. It was a common device in early uh, Greek writing and literature and so forth that you would come up with sort of a person that you talk to. It's still done today. I'm just actually reading a book right now where the writer just comes up with a fictional person named Thomas, and then they have a, a dialogue with him. So, Theophilus, Theo, philosopher, God, philosopher. Anyway, get it? Um, so Luke understands, though, that he is interpreting what other people saw. Luke may very well have been an eyewitness to Jesus Christ, but of the events he's recording, he's relying upon other people's interpretations and accounts. Why? Well, because Luke is saying, like, I've read Matthew, I've read Mark. I may even have read parts of John and Peter and everybody else who said this. Peter probably couldn't write. So he heard the stories. And he's saying, like, he's saying, like, I want to get it straight. I'm going to tell my version of it. Is Luke lying? Is he creating a fabrication? No. He says, I want to get it accurate. Neither one of these, the liberal nor the literalist, can handle this sort of talk. The literalist says, like, well, you didn't see it yourself? Well, maybe it's not true. And then the liberal says, like, yeah, Luke's making it up. I don't care what he says, he's making it up. He's still just telling his own, his own interpretation of the story. Now... What the liberal needs to understand is that any good, normal, accurate historian can read what Luke wrote and the other gospel writers and say, it's good history. It holds up. 
Luke is not lying. It's validated. He's simply recording what he saw and what he was told. When it says there was a miracle and somebody says, yeah, I saw Lazarus raised from the dead. Luke says, well, and you did too, and you did too, and you did too. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, I'm going to write that down. Sounds incredible to me. That's far different than what you'll find on some of the end caps in the, uh, I'm going to call them the old-fashioned bookstores because now we buy everything online. But in the old-fashioned bookstores like Barnes & Noble, remember those kind of companies? Um, and on the end caps, they would have books like by Paul Meyer, The Marginal Jew, or John Dominic Cross and, you know, Jesus the Peasant, and the Mediterranean Peasant. And they're absolutely, since they start with the presupposition that there are no miracles or supernatural, they come up with crazy stuff like Martin Scorsese did in one movie, Last Temptation of Christ, and then other movies that have come out where it says, well, you know, Jesus, he ends up marrying Mary Magdalene, the prostitute. And then they run off to Egypt and have children and die happy old people. And there's no cross and there's no resurrection. That's what I think. What? You know? Where'd that come from? Luke could be like, what? I, I've never heard anything like that. Right. The literalist has a philosophical heir. And this heir is the near cousin, then, of the liberal's heir. They want the Bible to be a modern-day science book, and the literalist believes they are reading nothing but the pure facts, just the facts, ma'am. That's all that's all that's there. And they think they're the ones doing it. The former president of Dallas Theological Seminary, Louis Sperry Schaefer, speaks for really an entire generation that understands this and thinks about the Bible in this literal sense. This is what Schaefer says. The very fact that I did not study a prescribed course in theology made it possible for me to approach the subject with an unprejudiced mind and to be concerned only with what the Bible actually teaches. Schaefer is convinced his mind is pure, that he's actually, since he has no preconceived opinion, no educational system in America, no family baggage, no history, no English, so to speak, as opposed to the original languages in Aramaic or Greek, uh, no television shows beaming notions into his mind, no Discovery Channel, no Learning Channel, none of the John Dominic Crossan or Marcus Borg or any of the rest of the Jesus Seminar stuff coming at him, no consumerism, no church, no Judeo-Christian moral ethic culture, no deism, none of this Immanuel Kant and the rest of the stuff. Schaefer thinks he is reading the absolutely pure, unadulterated words and that he is fully equipped to, to explicate the scriptures perfectly. Because he's unbiased. But you see, everyone, we all pick and choose, and we all interpret. And if you're a science-driven skeptic, you may think, well, there you go. Since everyone's picking and choosing, and everyone's interpreting, then that's why Christians are all, you guys are all a bunch of hypocrites, and you're all just making up junk. You're all full of it. And that's why I don't believe in Christianity. And that's a person also who wants the Bible to be a science book. Now, I'm not saying the Bible doesn't contain science, because it does. And that it certainly contains a ton of history and is used by historians all over the place to validate whatever their particular doctoral thesis is. So is the Bible historical? Yes. Is it theological? Yes. Is there scientific information? Yes. But modern science and history 
was never the Bible's intent. The Bible was not written to satisfy your 21st century uh, understanding of science. It was maybe first century science or first century history, such as that little device about Theophilus. That's a mechanic in how you write. So at, that, at this point, we then have to ask this question, especially if you're of a conservative ilk. Is the Bible inspired? I think so. I believe so. Is it the Word of God? I think so. Because I'm a postmodern. <laughs> also because I've studied the history of it, and I've shredded it backwards and forwards. Does the Bible need to fit into some modern-day standard of science or history, the way we understand it now, and the way you and I were taught in high school and college and so forth? No. Why would we ever do that? Why would you want to look at the Bible with 21st century history and science eyes? That's something imposed on the Scripture that it was never meant to, to be uh, labored with. It was never meant to be that. No, Luke is not lying. He's, he's not trying to make things up. He's telling the truth. Matthew, just for instance, calls Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7, he calls it the Sermon on the Mount. Luke has a Sermon on the Plain. You're like, well, pfft. see, that's what we call an error. I'm like, oh yeah? So you take 5,000 people out on the side of a hill, and where are you going to put them? on the flat spot, of the spot on the side of the hill. Now, I have friends who say, like, well, there's got to be two events because of one word, mount or plain. Like, really? You can't find a flat spot on the side of a hill in order to put a bunch of people out in the wilderness? It's one event to me. You know, I don't have any problem with that. Do you have a problem with that? You know, like, <laughs> it, it's like this. It's like this sort of thing. Let's say there's a car wreck at an intersection, Okay. And there are, there's a witness on each of the four corners of the intersection. Let's just make up some names. How about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Four guys that are going to see a car wreck in an intersection, right? They, they all see a wreck. But how each one of them describes it may have variances to it. Okay? They're all agreed. There was a wreck. Check this out, the liberal reader. Because they're saying, because the liberal readers are like, nah, like then a spaceship came down and beamed them all up and uh, there was never a wreck and they kind of passed through each other because, you know, it was not real stuff. Like, nah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say, no, I really saw a wreck. Nobody was hurt. We're going to keep it clean this morning. And, uh, but Luke may say like, I, I don't think the guy coming from the westbound lane, he wasn't looking. Matter of fact, he was texting. Yeah. And then John's over there like, yeah, but you didn't see that the other guy was fiddling with his dash. Because your view is obstructed by that post thing, you know, that holds the car roof up thing and all that. And then, you know, Matthew's got his opinion about, like, I think the guy was scratching himself or something. You know, and, and then, and on and on they go, and they, each one has a different perspective. Like, do they agree, though? Was there a car wreck? Yes, there was a car wreck. Are they lying? No, they each have a different perspective. So Luke says, I'm going to tell you with the way I understand what really happened from eyewitnesses, I'm going to give you the accurate account of the whole deal. I'm not lying, he says. I'm not lying at all. So how do we read the Bible then, everyone, in an emotionally healthy way, in a philosophically healthy way? How do we read it as sane people? Well, here it is. We have to read the Bible 
the same way we would read a love letter because a love letter is about relationship and the Bible is about describing a people and the relationship with God the ups and the downs and the good and the bad all of it is in there everything from Adam and Eve and the, the, the murder just on and on and on all the way to the very end how do you read a love letter well you pour over it you don't just read it once say oh that's a nice piece of information I'm good no you'll fold it up and you'll carry it in your pocket you'll pull it out hopefully not when you're driving and you'll sit down and read it you know at Starbucks with a cup of coffee and you say like what do they say I'm gonna read it again ooey gooey this is awesome you'll memorize phrases you say I wonder what she meant by that I wonder what he meant by that he probably meant I'm really cool Dads, if you sat down this afternoon and you wrote your little girl a love letter, you wrote a letter to your little girl, you would pour out your heart to her. You'd tell her your dreams for her. You'd tell her who to marry and who to stay away from and what you were going to do if she does it wrong. You'd tell her the stories that shaped your family history and what you came from and what your roots are and why you're all that way and then you start apologizing that you know you've messed it up and then you say but I love you I love you I love you I love you you and I are bound to be together we, I will be thinking about you after I'm long gone in eternity I will be praying for you you know you'll say stuff like that right you'll have nothing but hopes and dreams for her and the best wishes for her and you'll try in just whatever limited little words and language you have to tell her how much how dear she is to you. And given the option between a liberal reading, a literalist reading, and the love letter reading, which one sounds like the Bible? The love letter. God is writing us a love letter. And he's writing a love letter to a particular people called the Jews, who, you know, as the good rabbi described them, the Jews are just like everybody else, only more so. The worst way, everyone, we could ever read the Bible is simply for information. You'll turn it into a magic book if you say, like, just tell me how to parent. Just tell me how to be married. Just tell me that. I want to know that quick. Where's the index on this dang thing? You're like, nah, 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 nah. You're looking for an incantation. You're not wanting to read a love letter. You're looking for some Ikea instruction manual, not a love letter. You don't want to be changed. Because when we read for information instead of transformation, we don't want to be changed. And the Bible will challenge you emotionally at your core about who you are. It will confront you. It will slice and dice you into a million pieces and then put you back together in love. Just not the same way you thought you could. You see, the worst way to read the Bible is to try and control God and try and manipulate it and try and grasp it and tell God, like, this is the way it's supposed to be. And now I'm thumbing through the Bible trying to find something that validates my preconceived ideas about the way the world's supposed to work. And instead, this, when we call it truth as Christians, we're calling it like a sword because it's going to slice and dice you. If you don't approach it that way, it can't change you and it won't transform you. You're just like, I'm done with that book. Emotionally and psychologically, the literalist and the liberal are entrenched in their false self and a shadow self. 
And the Bible constantly confronts those lies that we tell ourselves and the falsehood. Take, for instance, the words of Jesus. He runs into a well-heeled, aristocratic, young, rich man who says, I keep the law. I'm perfect. I just want to know, am I missing anything? What does it take to gain eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you need to sell everything and come follow me. And he doesn't do it. He won't do it. Jesus takes a saint and turns him into a sinner in just a few seconds. Likewise, Jesus runs to a woman who's been caught in adultery and she's laying in the filth and in the dirt in the street with a bunch of stones laying around her. Because just a moment before, a bunch of men were ready to stone her to death because she'd been caught in adultery and they dropped their stones and walked away because of the words of Jesus. And now Jesus is talking to that woman and he's saying, does anybody judge you? Does God judge you? Does your fellow man judge you? I don't judge you. You don't need to commit adultery anymore. Stop sinning. You're fine. And in one moment, in just a few seconds, Jesus takes a sinner and turns her into a saint. And we read about her today. The book is about creating identities for people, your true self, that you really belong to God because you and I are a word of God ourselves. You are God-breathed. From the dust you came and from the dust you shall return. And God breathed dust and out came Adam and out came humanity. And you and I have that image of God within us. You are spoken forth by God. You are a word of God. And when you as a word of God sink up and get close and delve into the word of God and the logos of God, the very thought of God, the mind of God, you become who you were intended to be all along. You get synced up with the breath of God that is already inside of you. You and I are words of God and we need the word of God to, to affirm and make us flourish. And will it hurt? Most certainly. Will it heal? Most certainly. That's what we call inspiration. That's what we call truth when we talk about the Bible. Not some sort of post-enlightenment rationalist yardstick of science and what is truth. It is certainly inspired. It is certainly truthful. It is truthful about the human condition. And when the gospel writers write about water being changed into wine, they're just simply saying, like, it just happened because there is a God. Deal with it. What else can we do? There's a couple of practices on how to read the Bible healthy. And I've shared these just a few weeks ago, and you heard about them even today. They're very, very simple. And for some reason, I think because of, we like our false self often too much because we're comfortable with it, we'll never, we don't like to do these. But I'm going to tell them to you again. The first one is Lexio Divina. Lexio Divina, it's Latin, and it's in Latin because it's old. It's all the way back from the time of Jerome in the second century. And it stands for the divine reading. Lexio Divina is divine or sacred reading. 
It's very simple. It's pretty much a quiet time if you're familiar with that language. But it has a little bit of difference to it because it does this. Here's how you do it. There are four rungs of the ladder of Lexio Divina. They're very, very simple. You can think about them very, you know, you don't even have to write them down hardly. You read it over and over and over. A short passage. Let's just say you were going to read. Indeed, the Word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing, you know, and on and on. You read it. You read it four, five, six times. And then somehow your eye keeps coming back to the word piercing, piercing, piercing. I can't get that word out of my mind. I don't know what that means. And so what you do is you grab your journal or a piece of paper or the back of an envelope or a post-it note or something, and you just write down the word piercing. Maybe you just start writing it down a bunch of times. And then you do this one interesting little turn. You say, dear God, why are you showing me this word piercing? piercing. What do you want to tell me? What do you mean? When I think of piercing and you're writing all this down this whole time, you don't have to be a good writer or, you know, write poetry or be eloquent or anything like that. You just simply start writing out your thoughts because our brains are moving so fast. All the monkeys of the banana tree are going nuts because you're supposed to be at work and all this other stuff. And here you are writing about this word piercing. And you just keep writing. I'll tell you five, ten minutes will go by and you won't know where it went. And somehow you'll just know when to quit. You just stop. I used to do this in the morning. I didn't even know what I was doing when I was in my 20s. I would just sit there and write to God. And then you'll just rest and you put down the pen and you say, I wonder how I'd carry this around with me today. Maybe I'll just write that word piercing on a post-it note and stick it on my dash. One time... I can't remember what word was in my mind, but I wrote it on a piece of scrap cardboard and I stuck it in my shoe and I walked around with it all day. And then I think like, what's that in my shoe? Oh yeah, if the word was piercing, I'd be like, oh yeah, piercing. Some ancient Christians actually would, in order to do this sort of thing, they'd take a pebble, okay? And they'd put it in their cheek all day long. I know the dentist in the room are freaking out right now, but they, they wouldn't chew on it, they just put it in their cheek. And in this baseball week, we understand putting things in your cheek. but. Um, and they would walk around, they'd think like, I have a stone in my mouth, piercing. You see how that works? And the other one is not as simple and as easy. I mean, it's not, it's very, very simple. It's so simple, it's hard to do. The other one is just simply silence. Silence is the first language of God. Silence is the language of heaven. It says in Revelations, in the Revelation of John, chapter 8, verse 1, it says, When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, this is a picture of current heaven, by the way. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. When God wants to speak most loud, He's silent. You have to understand silence if you want to be with God. And you'll understand that Charlie talked about it. He said he got up early this morning, you know, because he's a, uh, Dr. Belt is a principal over at Blue Springs South, and so he's used to getting up, you know, he sleeps in until... 6.15, you know, on a lazy day. He's up, and he's waiting for the sunrise, and he sees it this morning, and I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard Charlie talk about the sunrise. And you can go out and sit on your deck and watch the leaves turn and the leaves fall and all that sort of thing. Watch the squirrels eat your tomatoes, if you're like me. And just in the silence and in the calm of the morning, especially this time of year. You'll hear the language of God. I tell retreatants there's this one simple practice. It's like an old-fashioned antenna. 
young people. They used to, on radios, that was the thing we had before, phones. They had an antenna that you could pull up. I know it's hard to conceive, but you would pull it up and it would increase your signal strength. Talk to your parents about it. And I say, well, if you're going to go out and be in silence, then pull up your antenna and here's your profound theological question that you should ask in that moment. God? That's it. God? And like young Samuel, you're saying, Speak, O Lord, for your servant is listening. And God will respond most of the time with silence. And if you're fully attuned, I know it sounds weird, you'll say, I totally understand. That's where I'm at these days. Maybe it's old guy talk or something. I've read more scripture than, I've lost to memory more scripture than I've ever read. Over 40 years of reading the Bible, I began memorizing parts when I was eight, year old, eight years old in a church that believed in literalism. In 17 years old, I began to study and I began to argue with my leaders. I remember pointedly arguing through Romans with my young life leader when I was 16, 17 years old. All the way out to Colorado in an RV. The guy must have hated my guts by the end of that trip. I'm a theological nerd. I still remember what the argument was. It was, do we still sin or not because of Christ? And you're like, okay, great, let's not go there. Then I got in my 20s, my 30s, I went to seminary, and they made me get this Bible right here, which I still have. No red letters of Jesus, no cross-references, no footnotes, no maps, no nothing. Not a single luxury in this Bible, I'm telling you. They wanted us to start over. So we had to get a brand new translation and a brand new Bible. Just try and walk into it with no preconceived ideas. And I started over on the Bible. I've learned theology. I can read it in Greek, a little jaunty, but I can read it in Hebrew. If I kind of, you know, get the rust off, I can read it there too. I've preached it. I've taught it. I've, I've exegeted it. I've done hermeneutics on the thing. I have beat the thing up, the Word of God. And these days, I'm even working on a doctorate. And just to let you know the scary stuff about it, that by February, I will have to have read 3,000 pages just for a single class. All about the Bible and Scripture. And I tell you all of this. I tell you all this because I don't know nothing about God. And I'm supposed to be an expert. Of course, we all know what an expert is. An expert who knows is somebody who knows everything about, uh, you know, more and more about less and less until they know absolutely everything about nothing. And that's me. And the nothing I know is that God loves me. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that's taken the long way around the barn to come back to the very same thing that I knew when I was four years old. When I was reading it as a love letter. How about you? Have you fallen into one of these two sort of damaging extremes on reading the Bible, sort of the literalist or, or the liberal materialist reading? Have you fallen in one of these pits? Are, are you reading the Bible simply so you can argue with people? Are you reading it as a proof text? Are you reading it as some sort of magic book or a mystery book? 
irrelevant to life? Mostly, ask yourself, am I resisting God? Am I trying to manipulate and turn things into what I want God to tell me? The Word of God is speaking to you right now. Not me. Not any of these words. The thought of God is upon the room. And it's drawing you in ways you cannot understand inexplicably towards itself. Because the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides your spirit from your soul, the joints from the marrow, and it is able to judge your thoughts and your intentions, and that's the scariest part of reading it, because you will find out what you were meant to be all along, laid bare right before the Almighty. And I can't imagine living life without this storyline, because everybody's living out some kind of story. This is where we ought to be. Lean into it, everyone. This is the way it was supposed to be. The Bible is the thing that's supposed to tell you who you're supposed to be. It's your journey home. It's your ticket home right here. This is, will, will make you emotionally healthy. You'll be confused, no doubt about it, but you'll be emotionally healthy as it begins to confront who we really are supposed to be, a child of God with a love letter in your hand.